So here we are moving into uh, the next lecture in this class, which is going to focus on attachment theory. But before I jump into attachment theory and start kind of telling you some of the things and stuff that I think are incredibly important for you to know, if you want to understand and use that theory, I want to do a short review of the two other theories that we covered in our most recent podcast lectures. So ego psychology is a theory that was created mainly in the United States, mainly kind of in concert with a ideology of capitalism. Uh, and that is an ideology that really privileges the individual uh, and making the individual into a very strong and flexible, capable individual who can work hard and if they work hard, become successful. So the goal of ego psychology very broadly speaking, would be to make the individual's ego stronger and more flexible. This means increasing what is called ego functioning and lowering what is called ego defenses. The theory of ego psychology was really reliant on something that Freud created called the economic model of the mind. And the economic model of the mind postulated that at any given moment, there is a finite and limited amount of energy which is available to us, right? Um, our body only has so much energy at any given moment. Our mind only has so much energy at any given moment. And everything that we're doing, everything that, that is going on is taking energy out of that system. So, you know, your heart beating, your lungs breathing, all, all the stuff your body's doing is taking a very, very tiny, tiny bit of energy out of that system. Uh, the things that you're thinking about are taking energy out of that system. If you're making a plan, that's taking energy. If you're studying for an exam, that's taking energy, so on and so forth. Now, most of the time, there's enough energy in the system and the ego will direct it towards the different things that need that energy. And as long as there's not too much things taking too much energy, we don't have any problems. But... When we find ourselves in situations where we have things that there are too much things and they're taking too much energy, we do start to have problems. This is when our ego kind of starts to become somewhat overwhelmed. And when our ego becomes overwhelmed, we start uh, making mistakes. We start doing things and saying things that we probably later on regret. Now, one of the things that is always taking energy in this system is our ego defending our conscious minds from all sorts of things that it doesn't want us to know. That is taking desires, memories, uh, associations, wishes, those sorts of things that if we were to realize them, they would unsettle us and, and repressing those things into the unconscious where we don't have access to them. The more things that the ego is repressing into the unconscious, the more energy that repression takes. Uh, the more those repressed things are attempting to come out of the unconscious, likewise, the more energy the continued repression takes. And the ego psychologists were kind of by and large trying to help people become a little bit more open sometimes to certain things that were going on in their lives, uh, the certain desires that they had, certain things that they were defending themselves from uh, and saying like, okay, if you can if we can help you realize these things in a kind of somewhat controlled fashion, then you won't need to invest the energy into defending yourselves from in that. And if you 
don't invest the energy into defending yourself from them, that energy can then be freed up and used in all sorts of other ways. So once again, ego psychologists thought that they wanted to make the egos better at functioning. And one of the ways to make the egos better at functioning was to sort of change the way that the energy flowed in the system. Uh, take the energy away from needing to defend us uh, by making the things that we're defending ourselves from kind of go away or, or become less of a problem. And then when that happens, all that energy which is being devoted to the defense can then be redirected towards other stuff. So hopefully that makes sense to you. And like I said, hopefully that's kind of oldnews.com if you've listened to the previous podcast lecture. The other theory that we talked about in this class was self-psychology. And so that's a theory which is different than ego psychology in a number of ways. Uh, one is that ego psychology is a theory which was contributed to by a number of different people. There was lots and lots and lots of big ego psychologists kind of working together to create what was ego psychology. Self-psychology, on the other hand, is primarily the work of one guy whose name is Heinz Kohut. It was like ego psychology. It was created here in the United States in the Midwest in Chicago. Heinz Kohut kind of left uh, Vienna, Austria as the Nazis were coming to power because he thought, mm, I see what's happening here. Or maybe he didn't think this. His family thought this. They saw what was happening and they thought, we got to get out of here. And they did. And rather than stopping in New York, uh, which is what a lot of people did and kind of setting up shop there, the Kohuts continued to move west and they settled here in Chicago. So as Kohuts here, he creates this theory called self-psychology. And for him, the self, I think, is something which is a more deeper and more fundamental part of us than our ego. And what Kohut wanted to do is help people create a really solid foundation of the self, right? He wanted, if you think of the self as the foundation that all of these other things, your identity, your personality, your ego kind of like sits on top of, Kohut wanted that to be a really strong solid, cohesive foundation. And so his goal was to help people create stronger and more cohesive selves. And he thought if you could do that, that that would end up making people's lives a lot better. Uh, so one of the things, other things that Kohut believes is that the creation of a self is not something that somebody does on their own. It's always something which is co-created, something which is created in concert between an individual person and their, the people and institutions in that person's environment. You know, Koha was very aware of the fact that when we're babies, when we're infants, and when we're children, and even really when we're adolescents, there's just a lot of things that we need from other people. And he thought that if we are lucky enough to go through our lives, generally speaking, getting enough of what we need from other people, that we will create a much more stronger foundation, a much stronger self, a much more cohesive self as a result of getting the things that we need. And, you know, the, Kohut was very aware of the fact that there's some very material things we need, like, you know, nutrition, access to medicine and clean water and all that stuff. But he also took a look at some of the psychological needs that people had that were present and very necessary for them to create a good, strong, cohesive self. And he saw three things. People needed grandiosity, you know, which we could say is kind of like an, an ability to believe that you can do things. Uh, they needed ideals, role models, people who they could look at and go, oh, look, that person, I want to kind of model my life after them because they seem to have stuff figured out. It kind of gave us a, a target that we could shoot for, uh, a person who we could emulate and in emulating them kind of become more capable people ourselves. And that we needed friends, people who were kind of at the same stage of life that we were, 
going through a lot of the same stuff that we were, encountering some of the same problems that we were, uh, those sorts of folks. We needed to have those folks in our lives so that we could kind of struggle together with them and so that we could succeed together with them, that life is a lot better when you have friends and it's a lot harder when you don't. So for Kohut and self-psychology, relationships are a super important thing. Uh, relationships are some of the ways that we get our needs met. If we don't have good relationships, it's going to be more difficult to meet our needs. If we do have good relationships, it will be somewhat easier for us to meet our needs. Um, but even if we have good relationships, even if we have a lot of the things that we need, Kohut would say that the creation of ourself is an ongoing lifelong project. It exists at every stage of our life cycle. It's never done. We never complete it. And we always need more, right? We, we're we never going to go through our life and ha- be able to say we have everything that we need and now we don't need anymore. Need is something which is always going to be present in our lives. Therefore, uh, relationships are always going to be things that we need in our lives. Relationships that meet our needs is going to just need to be an ongoing thing. And that's a big part of self-psychology. So now with that review out of the way, what I am going to do is jump across the Atlantic because that's where attachment theory starts with the work of a very famous British dude named John Bowlby. Uh, but before we make that jump over to the Atlantic and Mr. John Bowlby and some of the people who came after him, I am going to play some transition music. Here it is. Okay, so to get started, what I'm going to want to do is talk about attachment by talking about three different thinkers that kind of created, extended, modified, improved what we nowadays call attachment theory over time. The first person who I'm going to start with is somebody who I referenced at the very end of the review that I just did. It's a guy named John Bowlby, who was a British person who theorized something called a secure base. And Bowlby's idea of a secure base is really the start of what we think of as attachment theory today. So let me tell you a little bit about Bowlby. Bowlby was a psychoanalyst. He was trained by a woman named Melanie Klein, who we haven't talked about yet in the class. We're actually going to be talking about her in a, in a coming week. She was an incredibly influential psychoanalyst who had a massive influence on so many people, and John Bowlby was one of those people. But anyways, uh, when Bowlby was being trained as a psychoanalyst, one of the things that he did is he became somewhat critical of it, and part of his criticism was that psychoanalysis was this style of working with people, this theory that put a huge emphasis on what was going on inside a person, in a person's inner world, interpsychically. And he thought that that stuff is important, but he thought that it maybe was a bit of an overinvestment. It was an overinvestment in the internal, in what was going on inside our heads. And what, we, what he thought psychoanalysts weren't doing was taking a look 
at what was actually occurring in people's real, like kind of material lives, their, the lives that their bodies were in in the world. And he thought that that was something that should be looked at too. Now, one of the things that Bowlby took a look at was uh, during World War II, he was one of the people who sort of like uh, was tasked with taking a look at these sorts of group homes that a lot of British children were being evacuated to. They lived in places like Manchester and Liverpool and London. In all those cities during World War II, they were targets for German bombers. And so children were taken out of those cities away from their families and they were relocated to these kinds of group homes that existed in the British countryside. And in these group homes, a, a lot of their uh, kind of basic material needs were met, i.e. they had the food to eat, they had clean water to drink, they had shelter from the heat and the cold, all that sort of stuff. But Bowlby noticed that they didn't have a lot of what we might think of as their emotional needs being met or they weren't being met enough. Uh, he saw that they were being cared for by people who were professionals, but who were not their family members. And as a result, these professionals kind of practiced what would be considered a, a professional distance, right? They didn't do a whole lot of like overt displays of physical affection for kids. They didn't get invested in the kids' lives the same way that their you know family would. They saw to their needs, they, they made sure they had what they needed, um, but they didn't cultivate what we would consider to be a really strong, close emotional bond with those kids because doing so would be seen as unprofessional. So Bulby saw all this kind of stuff playing out. And as he saw it playing out, he noticed that it had an effect on the kids. And the effect was that they became less secure. They became more insecure. And this kind of led to him doing uh, a bunch more research and the result of a lot of that research, which is talked about in your textbook as well, so I'm not going to talk about it again here, is this articulation of what he called a secure base. And the secure base is this idea that children, if they have a secure base, then that's something that they can return to. It's a base. They can, they can go to their base. And when they go to that base, what they can do is they can kind of like charge up on this thing called security. So by way of metaphor here, almost everybody who's listening to this is going to have some kind of an electronic device that has a battery is if you take your electronic device out into the world and you use it, you know, the battery drains throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, you take it home and you probably plug it into some kind of charger and that charger recharges it. Bowlby thought that a similar thing happens with children and security. And what I mean by that is that children would you know, go through their day and as they went through their day, they'd experience things. And sometimes the things that they experienced would make them feel insecure. When they felt insecure, they needed to have a place that they could return to. And when they returned to that place, being there would help them, would recharge their security. Uh, one of the ways that we might see a secure base kind of playing itself out in our society today would be if you're ever at a playground and if you have, you know, your own kids, you brought your kids to a playground. And even if you don't have your own kids, maybe you've seen kids at a playground. Imagine a kid at a playground and the kids like running around doing playground kid things. And at some point the kid kind of like gets knocked down or falls down, something like that. When that happens, one of the things that a kid, especially a young kid will do is they might look for their parents, go to their parents and, you know, tell their parents that they, they fell 
somebody knocked me down, whatever, they're upset. Uh, maybe they cry a little bit. Their parent, you know, pays attention to them, tells them something and, you know, gives them some kind of encouragement or whatever. And maybe it picks the kid up and holds them for a little bit. There's a lot of different things that, that somebody would do. And the idea here is that eventually if the kid gets enough of that kind of attention from the parent that will do, 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 sort of like recharge their security. And eventually the parent can put them down and they can go back to playing because they have enough security again. So Bowlby's whole idea here is that for a person to be what we would call a secure person, they need to have other people, usually their parents, who they can go to and they can kind of like charge up on security by being around those people. This is really important because just as much as having individuals in our lives who can help us charge up our security is great, not having those people in our lives can be very problematic. It can be very detrimental to a person's sort of psychological and emotional development if they don't have kind of that security charging station within some kind of a relationship with other people who care for them pretty deeply. Uh, and so that was really the big thing that Bowlby comes across here is this articulation of a secure base and the way that a secure base functions and how important it is for human beings to have some kind of a secure base in their lives. Now it's from Bowlby's idea of a secure base that the idea of what we call nowadays secure attachment originates. So when somebody is a securely attached person, what this means is that they can attach to form a relationship, a meaningful, significant relationship with another person. And within that relationship, what they can do is they can display and talk about their emotions in ways that are for the most part kind of appropriate, right? And I think it's really important to say this because in my experience, when I've talked about secure attachment, I've discovered that some people seem to believe that individuals who have a secure attachment, that these are people who just don't experience any kind of negative emotion at all, that they're like immune from negative emotions. That's not the way that it is. People who have secure attachment, they do have negative emotions. They feel things like anxiety, sadness, jealousy, frustration, etc. But what they do with those emotions is they, they don't try to hide them. They don't try to make sure that no one sees that they're feeling these things, nor do they kind of go crazy with them and make sure that everybody sees that they're experiencing these things. What they do is they express them but they express them in ways that work. I'll try to give you an example of this. Um, imagine that there's somebody who has a secure attachment style and they go from being single to dating somebody. And as they date them, they go on date one, date two, date three, date four, so on and so forth. And everything's going pretty good. You know, the person who they're dating seems interested in them. They're having great conversations. They're doing fun things. But at a certain point, maybe this person who they're going on dates with starts to display a little bit less interest than they have. Now, a securely attached person would experience this and that might make them anxious. And what they might do in that situation is they might say to this person who they have started dating uh, at an appropriate time, hey, can I talk to you about something? It seems to me like, you know, when things were starting off, 
you were really into me. I was really into you. And, and now some time's gone by. And, you know, it, it seems like there's other things in your life that you're are kind of taking up your time and energy again. And it's, it's making me a little bit nervous. I just want to check in and see, are you still kind of into this thing? Are you still interested? That might, saying something like that would demonstrate, A, that the person recognizes the emotion that they're feeling anxiety, B, that they're able to express it verbally in some way and C, that they're able to express it verbally in a way that isn't like super demanding and over the top. It's an appropriate expression of anxiety. And this is the way that people with a secure attachment, people who've had a secure base and who have kind of internalized the secure base that will be theorized, this is what they can do. They can experience their emotions. I mean, again, I'm going to say it again because it's so important. They experience their emotions but they can experience those emotions without totally and completely surrendering their security. They can still be secure, even though they're experiencing an emotion, which is kind of an insecure emotion. It doesn't totally destabilize them. It doesn't wreck them. It doesn't uh, force them to behave in ways that are kind of unhealthy. Ultimately, that is fundamentally the way that secure attachment works and some of the effects that it has when people have it. And all that comes from John Bowlby's idea of a secure base. So moving on from John Bowlby, let's move on to the next really big name in attachment theory, and that is the name of Mary Ainsworth. So Mary Ainsworth is somebody who probably does the most for attachment theory. She's the one who really adds a ton of different things to it and comes up with a way of empirically validating it, doing that through research and also kind of does work to show that attachment and attachment styles are things that exist not only within Western societies, i.e. they don't only exist within European and North American countries. So Mary Ainsworth started out as a research assistant to John Bowlby, you know, who was studying this thing called the secure base and how it forms and the ways that it gets internalized and, and all of that stuff. And well, Bowlby was really interested in security and then what creates security, and Ainsworth was too, she also decided to turn a little bit and start to take a look at people who are not securely attached, people who lack a secure base, people who have various forms of what we would nowadays call insecure attachment. And she notices that there are two different subtypes of insecure attachment. There are two, uh, somebody can, can be securely attached, like I just described, or they could be insecurely attached. And when they're insecurely attached, that insecure attachment can be either an avoidant and dismissing kind of insecure attachment, or it can be an anxious and a preoccupied form of insecure attachment. So let's talk a little bit about what each of these two subcategories are. So if somebody is avoidant or dismissing, what that means is that unlike a securely attached person, when somebody with an avoidant dismissing attachment style experiences some kind of a negative emotion, if they get anxious, if they get scared, if they get uh, angry, what they will do is they will avoid and dismiss that emotion. They will say, I am not feeling this. <laughs> that, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. Nothing to see here. Uh, I'm going to give you an example that many of you might be familiar with. Maybe even some of you have done this. So imagine that you're in a situation, you're talking to somebody, 
and whatever it is that you're talking about is making you feel worried, right? You're, you're not feeling good about the discussion. And as the discussion progresses at a certain point, the person who you're talking to, they pick up on the fact that maybe you're a little distressed. And so they say to you, hey, are you okay? Quick thing here. No one ever asks you if you're okay. And you don't ask anybody if they're okay until after you have decided that they're not okay or until after they've decided that you're not okay. People only ask if you're okay if they think that you're not okay. So anyways, this person has picked up on this and they say, are you okay? And you're not okay. But if you're an avoidant dismissing sort of person, one of the ways that you might handle that question would be to say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm fine. I just, you know, I've got this headache. My allergies are really bad. It's that time of year where they really bother me a bunch. But yeah, I'm, I'm fine. That is, and as, see, this is not a big deal, right? Like this kind of stuff happens all the time. But this is one of the ways that an avoidant and dismissing person operates. Rather than saying to the person, uh, actually, no, I'm kind of starting to feel anxious. I'm feeling worried. This discussion that we're having, it's bringing up these things that I, that scare me, that freak me out. That's maybe what a securely attached person would do. The avoidant dismissing person goes, nope, if I display my emotions, if I acknowledge them and show them to other people, something bad's going to happen. And I don't want bad things to happen. And so in order to avoid bad things happening, I'm going to hide these emotions from myself and from the other person in this interaction, right? So that's the way that avoiding and dismissing people work. Uh, Now, anxious and preoccupied people, what they will do is almost the exact opposite, right? If they start to, if they're having a discussion and they start to feel a little bit worried about it, what they'll do is they will start to, you know, like hyperventilate maybe, and they go, oh my gosh, I think I'm starting to have a panic attack. I'm freaking out. I need to sit down. They, they really display their emotions a lot and maybe in a way which is too much, right? For the, the kind of thing that's going on. Like, I mean, you can understand that sometimes you have a discussion with somebody and the content of the discussion makes somebody feel a little worried and that would be okay. But when somebody starts to like actually decompensate in front of you and starts to like literally physically and emotionally lose it, that's not good. And that's kind of the ways that anxious and preoccupied attachment works. So Ainsworth did not kind of originally discover and articulate these things based off of these two forms of insecure attachment that I just described based off of her interactions with adults. Instead, she kind of discovered them and studied them, articulated them based off of her research involving children. And the research that she did is called the strange situation experiment. And this is an experiment that she did with kids and the kids had to be somewhere between nine to 18 months old. Uh, They couldn't be younger than nine months. They couldn't be older than 18 months. I think the reason for that is that that age range of nine to 18 months is when kids can do some things, but can't do other things. Um, So for example, they can usually kind of like move around a little bit. They, they, they're not like an infant where, you know, you put an infant down the infant before they can crawl or or walk. They kind of have to stay where you put them um, so that these kids can at least be mobile. Um, But their verbal skills are probably not super high, right? Uh, At this point, they, they might be kind of talking at 18 months where they're probably not talking a lot. They don't have super sophisticated language skills. And that's important because one of the ways that we can process our emotions is through putting our emotions into words. Um, But anyways, the kids, the important thing you should remember about the strange situation is that the kids had to be between nine and 18 months old. So I'm going to real quick here, read something from a a text that I have about 
the strange situation procedure. The strange situation procedure is divided into eight episodes, lasting for three minutes each. In the first episode, the infant and his or her caregiver enter into a pleasant laboratory setting with mini toys. After one minute, a person unknown to the infant enters the room and slowly tries to make an acquaintance. The caregiver leaves the child with the stranger for three minutes and then returns. The caregiver departs a second time, leaving the child alone for three minutes. It is then the stranger who enters and offers comfort to the infant. Finally, the caregiver returns and is instructed to pick up the child. As the episodes increase the stress of the infant by increments. Um, so anyways, that, that, that's the way that the, uh, there's more here. Sorry, I'm looking at this. And there's just a lot of details in this text that you probably really don't need to know. The reason I'm reading this to you is I want to give you a sense of what happens during this strange situation procedure, which was something that Mary Ainsworth invented. She did this. She had the, she went, put kids through this scenario and then she watched how they behaved, how they responded you know, when the stranger came into the room, when their caregiver left and when their caregiver came back. And what she noticed is that kids didn't all respond the same. Some kids, kids with secure attachment, they would, when their caregiver, when the stranger came in, they were like, wait a minute. And they'd go to their parent and they'd be like, who, who is this person and, and stuff. But they displayed their insecurity, right? They, they weren't, they didn't go crazy. They were just like, I'm not sure about this. Likewise, when their parent left, the kid would be like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not so sure that this is what I want to be in. I don't, I don't think I like this situation so much. And they would maybe go to the door and they would, you know, try to open it. They would do different things to try to then go and find their caregiver. They wouldn't lose their mind. They wouldn't freak out, but they also wouldn't like play like nothing had just happened. They, they would show their insecurity in, in certain ways. Kids who were avoidant and dismissing, what they would do is uh, they, you could see that the kid was stressed out. Like the researchers could tell that when the caregiver left, the kid got scared, but they also noticed that the kid didn't go to the door. They didn't, they didn't display their fear. Instead, they just kind of like tried to play or uh, they, they, in a sense, the kid pretended like they weren't scared and just kind of like played with stuff in a really unenthusiastic way. And the kids who were anxious and preoccupied, they totally freaked out, had an absolute meltdown. And when the caregiver came back, they continued to have a meltdown um, and they were like, you know, why did you leave me? Never leave me again. That, that kind of stuff. And so this is where, where Ainsworth starts to see the insecure attachment. And she kind of following Bowlby thinks that insecurity comes as a result of a person not having the right kind of fit with a secure base when they're younger. Now, the other thing that Ainsworth does, which is really interesting, is that she does this uh, strange situation procedure that I just described. She does it in the United Kingdom. She does it in the United States. She does it in Uganda. And it, she gets other people to to do it too. And through her efforts, one of the things that people start to realize is that attachment is something that all human beings do, no matter what culture they're in. But there are some cultures that tend to encourage, you know, one form of attachment more than others. So here in the United States, for example, I've seen a lot of research that would indicate that the kind of attachment that we encourage the most is actually an avoidant and dismissing style of attachment. That is the attachment style, which is rewarded in our culture a lot. Uh, we see this, for example, if a kid is upset about needing to share their toys, you know, their parents might say things like, no, we, we, we share. That's what we do here. 
or we tell kids things like we don't say we hate people. Uh, all of these are in some ways kind of like in reinforcing the idea that kids shouldn't display certain emotions and if they do it, we'll create a problem for them. And so they shouldn't do it. Uh, and other cultures maybe produce more of like a preoccupied kind of attachment. Some cultures might be more prone to produce secure attachment, but that's just kind of what we see here. So moving on from Mary Ainsworth, the next big name in attachment is a woman named Mary Main. And she was the research to Mary Ainsworth, who had been the research assistant to John Bowlby. And Mary Main, I think, is actually still alive and might even still be working. And if I'm not mistaken, she lives in London, Ontario, Canada. And there's actually a place there that you can go and you can learn all about attachment if you want to. I've never done it, but I've heard of people who have done it and they've only ever said wonderful things about that program. Anyways, so Mary Main takes the work of Mary Ainsworth. You know, so John Bowlby talks about secure base. This turns into secure attachment. Mary Ainsworth talks about insecure attachment, describes two different types of insecurity uh, that manifest in different ways. Mary Main is the one who comes up with the concept of disorganized attachment. And one of the things that she does is she creates something called an adult attachment interview. Now, I've, I've taken uh, some text about the adult attachment interview, and I've put that on our course's Moodle page. So if this is something that is interesting to you, you might want to go check out that PDF, which is posted there. So as the adult attachment interview is a way that Mary Ainsworth studies attachment in adults. Now, you can't put adults through the strange situation protocol that you put children through because adults would handle that in a radically different way. Um, adults, instead, the way, the way that Mary Main assesses attachment in adults is by interviewing them in this semi-structured way, asking them about their relationships with their parents, about their childhood, about a bunch of other stuff. And then based on the way that they answer those questions, over time, she decides this is the kind of attachment that a person has. And she discovers this new form of attachment, she thinks, and she calls it disorganized attachment. Disorganized attachment is the most problematic kind of attachment that exists out of all of the styles. And disorganized attachment is something that we would see when, um, in, if we were looking in kids, what would happen is when their caregiver left the room, the kid would behave in super ultra bizarre ways. And when their caregiver came back, they would behave in super, super ultra bizarre ways. Um, that didn't fit the insecure styles that I was talking about above. What you would see a lot of times is like the kid would go to, for example, run to their caregiver when their caregiver came back, but then they would stop really suddenly and they would like, you know, whip their head back and have like convulsions. And this wasn't like they were actually having a, a seizure because they had some kind of medical condition. There was no medical cause for it, no biological cause that people could detect. This was just like very strange behavior that they were seeing in people. And what Mary Main articulates is that some kids grow up in an environment where their caregivers are super inconsistent. So what this means is that at some point, a kid might, you know, fall and hurt themselves and they'll go to their parent and their parent will say, oh, you poor thing. Let me see. Do you need me to kiss it? Make it feel better. And then the next day, maybe the kid falls and hurts themselves and rather than behaving that same way, the parent smacks them really hard on the face and says, you stupid idiot, why, why are you so clumsy? And it's the same parent, but the parent behaves in totally different ways. And what this does is that it creates a total inconsistency. The kid wants to be able to get comfort and security from their parent. And sometimes they get it, but they don't always get it. And when they don't get it, they tend to get some kind of a violent reaction from their parent. And so this means that like the world is a very unsafe place. Caregivers are very unsafe people. They're unreliable. 
and this makes it very difficult for people to attach. Then in adults, uh, adults who have a disorganized style of attachment, these are adults who desperately desire, who desperately want to be able to have relationships with other people, meaningful, fulfilling, deeply connected relationships. But as soon as they get those relationships, they get terrified that the person is going to treat them badly. And then they they push the person who they are trying to connect to away. Uh, now, if you're listening to this, one of the things that some of you might be thinking is that that sounds an awful lot like this thing I've read about in the DSM-5 called borderline personality disorder. And yeah, it does. There are some people out there now, in fact, who are saying that the diagnosis borderline personality disorder is kind of a mean thing to put on people because if you if somebody has that diagnosis, they're oftentimes experienced as somebody who's manipulative or, or somebody who's going to be extremely difficult. If instead we think of people who have that kind of symptom set as people who have disorganized attachment, it maybe changes the way we, that we see them and we see them as people who have had to endure a really inconsistent kind of caregiving, a really inconsistent set of people who they have relied upon, who have at times have been reliable and other times have not been reliable. And it helps us maybe have a little bit more empathy for them. So anyways, that wraps up the big names in attachment. John Bowlby, secure base, secure attachment, Mary Ainsworth, insecure attachment, two subtypes, avoiding and dismissing, anxious and preoccupied. And Mary Main, who came up with disorganized attachment. Also remember that Mary Ainsworth created the strange situation procedure and that it was uh, Mary Main who created the adult attachment interview. Uh, last bit of summary here, there are four styles of attachment. Uh, the first type is secure or autonomous. These are people who have internalized a good secure base. The second style is insecure, avoidant dismissing. This is Mary Ainsworth discovery. The third type is uh, anxious and preoccupied. That is also Mary Ainsworth's discovery. And the fourth type is disorganized or unresolved. And that was discovered and articulated by Mary Main. And that wraps up this section of the podcast. Actually, we're going to have one more section. But first, let's do a little bit of transition music. So here is the final part of this podcast lecture. And in this final part, what I want to do is I want to kind of make a couple of points about attachment theory that have not really been covered in your reading either at all, or I think maybe they were mentioned, but they weren't adequately covered. Point number one, attachment is a really hopeful, very optimistic theory, and this draws a lot of people to it. What makes it hopeful and what makes it optimistic is that it claims that a person's attachment can and probably will change throughout their life. What that means is that people can go from being securely attached to being insecurely attached, and they can go from being insecurely attached to securely attached, and that this is a possibility. It's not, it does not say that your attachment gets set when you're little, and that's what you're stuck with for the rest of your life. The idea is that we can and do change throughout the course of our life, uh, which brings me to point number two. Point number two is, and this is, this is kind of, the first point was an optimistic one. This is kind of a bummer. It is actually really, really, really easy 
to take somebody from being securely attached and make them insecurely attached. Likewise, it is very difficult to take somebody from being insecure and to make them secure. Now, I haven't read every single piece of attachment research out there, of course, but this is one of the things that is demonstrated in a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different attachment research. And it's something that people spend a lot of time trying to figure out. Uh, it's very obvious to the people who research attachment that trauma is something that takes people who are secure and makes them insecure. If somebody goes through a traumatic instance or a series of traumatic instances in their lives, the impact of trauma can really take away a person's security and take it away very quickly. Likewise, if after somebody has gone through a trauma or a series of traumas, it becomes more difficult to convince them that it is okay to attach to people, that it is safe and that they can be secure if they do it. That is something which is a harder thing to accomplish and it is a very easy thing to take away, right? It's easy to take away security, very difficult to give it. That's the second point. And this brings me to the third point, which is a kind of a metaphor that I want to make here that explains maybe or tries to explain anyways why this is. So what I'm going to do in this metaphor is I'm going to say that we have a psyche, a, a mental slash emotional part of ourselves. And we also have a physical body. And both of these things can get injured. Let's start with the physical body. If a physical body gets injured, then it can heal from an injury. But if, if it's been a significant injury, even after the body has healed, it's not as good as it was before the injury. Uh, I have a real life example from my own life here. When I was young, I was in my mid-20s, uh, I was uh, playing Frisbee. And as I was doing it, I ended up stepping in a hole and my ankle moved in a really uncomfortable direction and I sprained it. And I, you know, I went to the hospital, x-rays, you, you sprained it, you didn't break it, that's good, sprain, you got to put this boot thing on, you got to, you know, take lots of uh, Advil for a while, ice, rest it, elevate it, blah, 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 blah. So I went through that. And uh, like I said, that was when I was in my mid-20s. I'm now in my mid-40s. And as I sit here in front of this microphone today telling you about this, uh, my left ankle currently feels fine. It doesn't hurt. Uh, but I have re-injured that left ankle a whole bunch of times since that original injury. And the reason for that, I think, is that since the injury, that ankle has never been as strong or as good as it was before the injury. It's healed, but it's got all this nasty kind of like scar tissue and, and stuff in it. And that means that it's just not as flexible or as strong as it would be had I never injured it. So even though today here right now, I'm not in pain from that injury, uh, it's really, really easy for me to re-injure that left ankle. And that means I have to be really careful when I do things like, you know, run or, or play sports or that kind of thing. Um, and it's only going to get worse as I get older, but that's, that's the nature of injuries. After you've injured yourself, that's now a part of your physical body. My claim here is that our psyches kind of follow the same sort of logic as our physical bodies. If we endure some kind of psychological trauma, the effects of that trauma are going to create psychological scar tissue and our psyche is never going to be as strong or as flexible as it was prior to the trauma. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why it's so easy to take people and hurt them and in a sense, take away their security, take away their secure attachment. 
and why it is so much more difficult to get people from insecurity back to security. Uh, sticking, going back to my, my physical body thing here. After I did that thing with my ankle, afterwards I had to do a little bit of physical therapy. Physical therapy is really painful. It does not feel good. It's hard, right? You have to do these things and it hurts. Um, and it's, it's hard sometimes to convince yourself to do it because it's going to hurt and no one likes hurting. Uh, and the only way I think that you can convince people to do it is to convince them that even though it hurts in the short term, there's going to be a lot of long-term benefits if you are able to stick with it and kind of work through the pain sort of. And I think that's kind of maybe a version of what some people do when they do psychotherapy or psychoanalysis of people. They're trying to do some sort of psychological equivalent to physical therapy. You're trying to get people to go through things, talk about things that are hard to talk about, that are uncomfortable to talk about, that are painful to talk about. And they're not going to have fun when they do it probably, but there is a longer term benefit if they're able to stick with it and talk about those things overall. Uh, which ring, brings me to my last point, which is not so much about it, uh, attachment per se, but is about trauma. And I want to talk about trauma because I think that trauma has such a in, massive impact on attachment and just on people, obviously, right? So the claim that I want to make with trauma is that trauma can be understood along two different axes. One axis is the axis of intensity, and the second one is the axis of duration. So here's an example here. Imagine somebody gets hit by lightning. That is something which happens very quickly. It does not take a long time. The lightning strikes, it's done, right? Boom, done, finished. Uh, so very low duration, but very high intensity. I want you to compare that to something like uh, going through middle school. <laughs> I'm saying that uh, assuming that your middle school experience maybe was something like mine, I, which was not very fun. Middle school is this really socially awkward, weirdo time in life. And, and I think that there's probably a lot of like low intensity, but long duration traumas as people maybe go through that period of their lives um, and their bodies go through puberty and all the weird stuff that comes with that. It's, it's, it's messy, right? That would be, a, I think, a good example of long duration, low intensity trauma. Now there's some trauma that can be both high intensity and long in duration. What I want you to understand as if you look at this as a graph, the longer that people are in like the upper uh, and left hand or right hand side of that graph, the more messed up their attachment is going to get. And the more time they spend perhaps in like the, the lower left hand quadrant, the less messed up their attachment is going to get. And that brings me to my kind of call for action for this particular podcast lecture. What I'd like you to do before the next class is to try to think of some examples of trauma. And I want you to classify them in terms of their intensity and their duration and come to class be prepared to describe what those traumas are, how intense they were, where they fall along duration, and then how you think they might have impacted a person's attachment. If you can do that, you'll be in good shape. And that concludes this podcast lecture. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I will see you in class. Till then, please make some glorious mistakes. <laughs>